This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, we've got Gordon Price today. I am, uh, I'm over you're, the moon. You're, yeah, you're almost speechless. I'm you're speechless. You're so excited about this one. This was a phenomenal conversation that we had with Gordon. One of my favorite. We actually went so long that, uh, and we said to him, the, the best was we said at the beginning, this is going to be about 30, 35 minute conversation. Yeah, usually they're 20 to 35 minutes. Yeah. And then an hour and a half later, we're all still sitting around talking. And uh, it was just, I didn't want to leave that conversation. Well, it's phenomenal because a guy like Gordon Price, I mean, he needs no introduction. Maybe you should intro- introduce him, though, because he can speak to so many different topics and in such interesting ways. Sure. I mean, this this conversation goes all over the place. Yeah. Well, he's he's formerly, he's a Canadian urban planner. That's what he's, he's really kind of known for. Well, and a city councillor. Well, he was a city councillor between 1986 and 2002. So he really knows and understands the intricacies of the city bureaucracy. And the, and the politics. Right. The politics of getting things done yeah. at the city as well. He's also the currently uh, a fellow at uh, Simon Fraser University in the Center of Dialogue. Claims to be retired. Claims to be retired. I don't see any sign of that. No, no. I mean, he he also runs price. Well, just tags. think about. Okay, I, I just want you to think of the average retired person, uh, <laughs> yeah. potentially couch bound or potentially golfing or tennis in. Uh, and that's like their Palm day. Springs. Their day. Their day. He, yeah. he mentioned he's he's pushing seventy. Yeah. So so you think like, oh yeah, most seventies. I know it's like they. If they're lucky, they play tennis for an hour in the morning and then uh, hang up their spurs for the day. We received four updates from his blog 
while he was commuting here on public <laughs> and transportation. And they were all written by him. <laughs> I mean, he's th- got a, uh, an amazing staff there. Right. And they pump out tons of interesting content. And we should say price tags, if you're not familiar with that, that is a that is the the Vancouver blog in my mind. And you should be signed up for their newsletter or their basically for sure. flowing content that comes to your email. For, for sure. sure. And safe to say that the price is usually right. <laughs> That blog is uh, that blog is pretty bang on. It it is, and, and he's also just started a podcast. This is another thing who most quote unquote retired guys do. Uh, Price talks, yeah, <laughs> Price talks, and even in his spare time, we just heard that uh, Price hikes. Yeah, is it, has there been enough play on on? I mean, yeah. he does it, so I feel comfortable doing it as well. Well, yeah. Um, anyways, we're, we're uh, really, really excited to have Gordon on today. But Matt, it is a long conversation. Yeah, it's a long one. So maybe we should not play on his name anymore and cut to the chase here. <laughs> Absolutely. This is a fantastic interview. We talk about the city's past, present, and future areas most ripe for development, in Gordon's opinion. And uh, of course, we had to cover the apocalypse, the, the pending the, apocalypse. The, the pending apocalypse. This is the only time in the three years that we've talked about the challenges liberal democracies face uh, with climate change as well. Absolutely. So enjoy, guys. Okay, so we're here with Gordon Price, a fellow with Simon Fraser University, the Center for Dialogue, and former city councillor, between 1986 and 2002. How are you doing, Gordon? Doing good. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, yeah, thanks for taking the time today, Gordon. So can you start maybe by telling our listeners, most Vancouverites know who you are, but can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, I came to, doesn't everyone come from somewhere else? <laughs> in Vancouver, <laughs> Vancouver, yes, Vancouver. That's for sure. <laughs> Victoria. So I'm a Canadian who's moved east. <laughs> yeah, one of the few, I guess. <laughs> but by 1978, I figured, oh, yeah, this is about as good as it's going to get. So West End boy. Uh, pretty much been there for the time I've been in Vancouver, except for about four years in Yale Town. We can get into that. Fascinating story. Experience. But uh, after council became director of the SFU City program, so I've always been interested in urban stuff. I'm surprised more people aren't, actually. It's the environment around you. Right, right. Are you still in the West End? Yeah, Absolutely. Right up against Stanley Park. Wow. Oh, nice. So uh-huh. to Denman. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know the territory. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So maybe, I mean, we follow you. Uh, you have a very successful blog, Price Tags. Can you maybe talk a little bit about um, Price Tags and why you started it, what the mission is? Yeah, well, uh, 10 years ago now, and it was kind of the podcasting of its day. It was an easy access way of getting online. UBC offered uh, the opportunity to they'll set up a, a podcast and provide the server back when uh, sorry uh, a, uh, a blog back when uh, the uh, World Urban Forum was in town. And I thought okay, I'll give this a try, and liked the format right away. I had been doing uh, sort of PDF files of exploration of cities. That was good, but it was tough to do. Took time. This day to day allowed me to. I think what we mainly use blog posts for for is make observations on the on the urban environment around us, the politics, transportation, and other cities. What could we learn from other cities, and what have they learned from us? Right. And we should say, if anyone is not familiar with price tags, your mailing list is incredible. It sends what three to five posts a day, and it's all the information is. It's a fascinating kind of 
tally of what's going on in the city for if, sure. If you need a great distraction from your day to day. Yeah, yeah. Don't we all need that? Uh, Pricetags.ca. That's right. So maybe as a as a jumping off point here, Gordon, has 2018 been a good year for Vancouver? I don't know how to answer that. I'm going <laughs> to opt out by saying, well, it's not over yet. <laughs> History will judge. Uh, it's been a time where now, I, uh, this is what this election, civic election across the region was going to be about. It would tell us much better about where we are and who we are. And I, I think it has done that. Now, we can go into more details on that, but I do think, yes, we've kind of entered, I wouldn't be presumptuous to call it a new era, but I think there may be generational change here. Interesting. Can you can you kind of unpack that a bit? Yeah. We've gone through this a few times, and I have to go back into the weeds on Vancouver history, but the one that maybe some people would still remember was 1972. The NPA, which had formed in the late 30s, had pretty much dominated council and conducted the city as though it was a kind of business. There was a time when everything was changing, literally generational, boomers. It was changing politically, Trudeau in Ottawa, Barrett in Victoria, and a new group of leaders led by an investment banker, interestingly, called Art Phillips, and a group of people who I think still comprise the best council we've ever had. And they really set a new direction for this city. Fair to say without exaggeration. Many of the institutions, everything from the property endowment fund to the way we do our planning, just to the attitude we had about our city and who we defined ourselves, they set the course of direction that I think we are still in to some extent. But no one would have anticipated the particular problems that we faced in about the last five years. And there's no doubt in my mind that it would have to lead to some kind of change. Indeed, it has. And it is accompanied by, again, a generational shift. Hello, millennials and all you others out there that <laughs> you know, don't remember what I'm talking about anymore. So I feel fortunate that I was on council at a particular moment in time when things actually were pretty good. Yeah. You can't tell that at the time. But certainly looking back, we, I think we had found a right kind of balance for the city at that point in its history post-Expo. Maybe it's funny because I was going to say, I mean, you've been uh, an observer of Vancouver for a long time now and, and very involved. The dramatic changes that we've seen over the last five years, did you foresee those changes? Did they catch you completely off guard? Well, the, the scale of them did. Yeah. I, I don't think we had very much doubt that we were becoming more of an Asian city because of the change in immigration patterns. Now, look, it is really difficult to talk about this. Right. I'm not naive. However, it's important to acknowledge it. I remember one of the first things that I did when I got on council, it was to go to a, I think a social studies class at a school on the southeast corner of the city. I walked in and there in front of me was the future. And I would say 80, 90% were what we call people of color, Asian predominantly. And it was absolutely clear to me that this city was going to go through a fundamental change in its ethnicity, to some degree its culture, but it certainly wasn't going to be the kind of city that people would not, maybe nostalgically, remember. Uh, and with that would come a reorientation. With the sale of the Expo site, Grace McCarthy was very specific on this. We were opening up ourselves to the Pacific Rim. We were welcoming investment. We had already effectively welcomed immigration. And so that dynamic came as no surprise at all. But, and we still don't know because, you know, it's dangerous to generalize too much around your particular point of view or expectations. 
But no, no one would have anticipated, at least that I've run into, that we would see that the city would become polarized around whether you thought you had a place, you could afford it, your expectations were still realistic based upon what generations past had had been able to reasonably expect. And, and with that, of course, has come now this change on council and elsewhere, I think, that we are now seeing the change of. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see further changes, but uh, to, to statistics, the city is 50 to 60% rental, it is 52% people of color. It is becoming a place economically separate from its hinterland and even from parts of the rest of Metro. And that means it has to be thought of and governed in a different way. Is is the kind of crisis that you're outlining here or the, or the, the massive kind of shifts of the last five years, is that kind of what you going back to this idea of a generational shift and and what we've seen in this last election, is that kind of the, the crux of the generational shift that you're talking about here? It's just a way of measuring, yeah. acknowledging change. I'm almost 70, so I'm not going to pretend that I can go inside the head of a millennial and see the world from their point of view. But I do have a hunch that their expectations were not very much different from the ones where I came to this city. I didn't expect to live in a single-family house. didn't want to. I'm a West End boy. I expected a diverse city and an opportunity within it, which I found. Uh, and I expected a culture that would be open to, as a gay guy, uh, the way I wanted to define myself. I don't think those things fundamentally changed. And when I watch uh, young people around me, I can see that, yeah, young gay guys are still coming to the West End to reinvent themselves in the way that I did. They just happen to be more typically Asian, perhaps, or they ha- just have a different background than I did, but they're still going through, I think, the same thing. So if you're a young family starting out and you want to raise kids here, you would have, I think, an expectation that there would be a place for you. And the idea that Vancouver has changed so much or become so so unaffordable that there isn't a place for me, that, I think, is the source of the anxiety, yes, the anger, uh, and the, just the questioning that we're going through. So kind of keeping in that vein then maybe, Gordon, so what are some of your concerns with this current tension and and sentiment? Let me unwind for just a moment here. Let me just go back and talk about what what the purpose of a a city government is. Eventually we're going to get there. (laughs) You guys, what are you going to do about this? (laughs) And and I figured out pretty quickly that the basic functions and purpose of local government, of municipal government, wasn't why people ran for office. They could take it all for granted. So what are they? Well, you guys will relate to this. It's the servicing of land. It's making land available and providing the pipes, the water, no water, no city. It's to provide the servicing and the maintenance and the protection of it. It's it's just the basic day-to-day stuff that we, by and large, do not talk about and don't have to because we're a damn well-run city. <laughs> we're, a, we're a rich place. This is one of the richest places on the globe, and we have a stable government, and we have a level of service that's as good, we reasonably think, as almost anywhere. Well, once you take engineering and police and fire 
that's basically it. That's your budget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and so when you assign your property taxes, you're you're basically looking at what's it going to cost to do this, and then the rest of it you can have good debates about. It's the social end of the spectrum. It's how we we provide culture. It's how we welcome diversity and handle that kind of those kind of questions. It's all the stuff that you can see is filling up the council agenda. But go back to the basics. Can we continue to provide a place to build so that people have a place to live? And if you can't do that, then you should not be in civic government. So that gets us, of course, immediately to planning. And how do you accommodate expectations, places to live in a a city that basically ended uh, the period of greenfield sites, open space in the 1970s, and essentially under my council, used up most of the brownfield sites the previous industrial areas, the places where you didn't have to go into existing neighborhoods and begin to have to change their scale and character. Well, here we are. How do we accommodate people who want to live here, people who were born here, people who can't afford or not afford to live here, and do it in a place where the neighborhoods that we have, we're in one right now, Mount Pleasant, that we actually like pretty much as they are. And if you do have a stake in it, if you've got, uh, you're fortunate enough to have bought a house, oh, back back when, even 10 years ago, uh, you know, you've written that curve up. I'm a good case of that. So I come here as a young person. uh, I'm basically freelancing. I'm working as an editor, whatever jobs I can get. My partner's a waiter. It's pretty classic West End boys. And and we have the opportunity to get in early and buy a condo. And we do. I think it was $78,000. And I've just ridden the curve up, and it's turned me into a millionaire. I did almost nothing for that. I've just benefited immensely. And i got to be honest with myself. I've incorporated that into my sense of security. I've incorporated it kind of into my identity, certainly my expectations about the future, and the kind of change that I'm prepared to accept that if I wouldn't necessarily benefit from, at least wouldn't make things different or worse in my community. It's very difficult to try and reconcile basically those two constituencies. Ian um, at Canby Reports has done a nice chart which says maybe the only one of the spectrums is left and right ideologically. That's the one we typically use. But now the other axis is uh, preservationist and urbanist. Right. People who are prepared to accept growth of a different kind, character and scale, and those who are not. And So it goes back to this fundamental question about what civic government it's for. It's to provide opportunity for place, whether home or business. That's always been the situation. It will continue to be. So the fundamentals are the same, but the ability to deal with it and the responses you have to take now, they are very different. So along those lines, with this idea of the preservationist and the urbanist or the NIMBY and YIMBY or however yeah. you want to define it. You can it. see how easily we can put people along that, that, uh, the, the spectrum of that chart, just as we do with left and right. Right, right. And it, and it does seem, I think, in, and your personal story is a good outline or a good example of, of a lot of people in Vancouver who, you know, love the city, have lived here a long time, have benefited immensely, are not super keen on, you know, uh, 
more cars on the streets, higher buildings next to their home, whatever. There's people well, in my neighborhood. Uh, uh, what I actually did conclude out of my experience on council, uh, you can oft- you really do get distracted by that whole height question, uh-huh. density question, loaded words. People have their own expectations. If you are basically satisfied with your community and you've been there for a while, and that can be only five, ten years, what you are most anxious about is what I call a change in scale. And that can be simply the difference between a single-family house at one story and a single-family house at two stories, a duplex. Right. It, it certainly can be a major change, high-rise. But more typically, it's that sense of character. And, and if the rate of change is slow enough or the, stays the same, that's actually more significant than whether it speeds up or slows down. If it stays the same, you can actually accommodate a lot of change. It's your expectations. But that changes, that scale, that character, and that rate of change scales. I can tell you as a civic politician, yeah, got a problem. Yeah. So how? So just thinking about the election this year, I mean, maybe there's two ways to take this. But one is how do you thread that needle? It sounds like you kind of just spoke to that a little bit. But can you talk a little bit more about uh, what we need to do in terms of of accommodating? They're uh, all hoping the their ass is going to be saved by having a citywide plan. Yeah. And it's just not... Vancouver, North Vancouver District, they turned down, oh God, they turned down a 100% affordable housing project on a parking lot because the rate of change was too great for the neighborhood. And they said, well, well, we don't, we're not saying no to affordable housing, but we need to do it in the context of a review of the official development plan. So they're all rushing out, hoping that by having a quote conversation with the community, that they'll be able to thread that needle. Right. Folks, you're not going to be able to do it. You're going to have to spend political capital. There will have to be decisions made around rate of change, around scale and character, if you really do want to accommodate other people. If you don't, then it's not that hard to maintain the character scale and and character of a community so long as you don't care about affordability. Because you induce scarcity. Hey, real estate guys, I have to tell you this. <laughs> <laughs> if, if there is a sense of scarcity, then that's the point where you can really begin to see speculative forces in the market. And so it's kind of city council's traditional job is to not allow a sense of scarcity, making opportunity available for new development, opening up new land, laying new pipes, extending that sewer system, providing that transit line so that you don't get that sense of scarcity. And the market then can do its job of trying to allocate reasonably for as broad a, a, not everyone, but certainly a much broader scale than what we've seen happen in the city in the last 10 years. So, so in Vancouver with the new council, I mean, there's just two thoughts on that. One is that when the election took place, uh, in my mind, uh, it, it wasn't quite as radical as it sounds like you're seeing this as a generational shift. So I'd like to kind of get to that. But then my second thought here is that the blanket rezoning of the city towards RT and now the what seems to be, it seems unclear to me as to how it's going to play out, but ratcheting back to RS or single family zone instead of duplex. Where, where do you see this new council? Yeah, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, just in terms of what you just do not about. know. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot, what? neither do I. <laughs> yeah, watching really carefully. Yeah. Every move that they make, 
uh, now is going to be indicative of where they're prepared to position themselves. That's why they're they are so hoping, you can just feel it, so hoping that Gil Kelly and the planning department are going to be able to go out there and we'll all have this big conversation around where we want the city to go. And from that, then we'll be able to conclude how we should allocate growth. I don't know. That should take four or five years. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the more the idea of more consultation to me seems, uh, I, I guess, required, but kind of insane in a way it feels like all we do is talk about the future of the city in a lot of ways well sometimes because we have a podcast about it yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes that is the purpose of consultation i'll be cynical on this yeah yeah it puts off the decision or prevents it from happening but there are very legitimate forms of consultation this is actually something that did happen in that 72 council the idea of local area planning it was jane jacobs time yeah we were going to go out there and work with the community because people in the community knew best what would be good for them and if you got their buy-in then you would be able to accommodate change with a willing neighborhood a willing community and in many cases that works where it doesn't is where you really don't acknowledge that the neighborhood hasn't evolved or aged to the point where it's ready for that change and and strategically choose those communities that are willing to accept it it doesn't happen citywide Sometimes it doesn't even happen within a neighborhood. But I can give you an example where it did. The third rail for the NPA when I was on council, I was a member of the NPA, was changing single-family zoning. And I, while I was a downtown renter, West End dweller, I understood where that was coming from. I don't think there is a culture that doesn't have as an icon the single-family house. Uh, That's from Little House on the Prairie to Downton Abbey, you look at what people have in their heads from kids to seniors. It's that sense of home and that we typically associate with a peaked roof and a little garden, you know. Okay, well, that's really important. So when I was looking at a zoning map one day, (laughs) it just hit me. All the white parts on the map are, are RS1, 1, or A. It's it's the top. It's the beginning. It's the valued. And white didn't mean race. It meant purity. And if you were going to go in and say to a neighborhood, that thing that you have, have desired and worked hard for, it's that thing you have now incorporated into, into your identity, that sense of home, that place. And, and you have your own house, the lawn out front, an expression of status. You have the garden in the back, privacy bucolic, a kind of Eden. You have separation from your neighbors, so you have a sense of possession and identity, and everybody on your block shares that common set of values. That's as good as it gets. It's, I think, possible to say that in the human experience, no one's had it better. And that's the DNA of Vancouver. Right from its origin, 1886, the railway arrives. 1887, next year, the streetcar is invented in Richmond, Virginia, and by 1890, we're laying track out into the wilderness. We are basically clear-cutting this place for single-family houses. We're in a neighborhood, Mount Pleasant, exactly that, part of the Fairview Beltline. So if you were a working person, if you came from tenements or factories in Manchester and you got off the boat or the rail line here, you could buy your own piece of land build your own house. This would never be possible from where you came. Very few people in the world could think about it. And that was Vancouver. 
from Strathcona to the West End and every neighborhood along the streetcar line, it was single-family housing. It was suburbia, 1.0. To think that you can go into communities and, and talk with people for whom this is something ideal and treasured, for people who recently arrived and have bought into it, and now is incorporated into their sense of identity, that, that's not going to end well. But eventually, a neighborhood evolves to the point where it's ready for change. And there are several reasons why that can happen. One, it becomes largely rental and speculative. People have bought up the houses and they're waiting for rezoning. And there's enough of them that they dominate and the people that they rent to have more or less the same expectations. That has happened in our history, and this part of Mount Pleasant is a reflection of that. We're in an apartment building now. This probably happened in the 60s and 70s. So the neighborhood evolved to that point. West End, 1950s and 60s. High rises, high rises. It was probably the kind of blandest, even worst form of architecture that we've come up with in the 20th century. But it provided tens of thousands of units of lower middle income rental housing, and still does. It's an urban miracle. A neighborhood like that really doesn't want to change, and it would make no sense for council to change it. Those three-story walk-ups that developers kind of had and have had in their sites now for mm-hmm. decades, how you, you can't replace it. And so you have a real incentive to try and maintain the status quo. In our case, we did that. In 1989, we basically put in uh, subtle but important changes to the zoning and development bylaw that really did prevent almost any change at all from happening in neighborhoods like the West End or the apartment district in Carisdale or South Granville. But we also took a neighborhood that was ready for change, basically what we call downtown South now, Yale Town, uh, basically just auto body shops, parking lots, spec buildings. And boy, we just rezoned that sucker <laughs> and created a new West End. We took all the pressure off. Right. So if you were a landlord in the West End, you couldn't raise rents above a certain point because at that point, your tenants would ship off to Yale Town where they could find a brand new condo, 50% of them being rented out, parking space and plumbing that worked. We had for about 10 years, more or less a balance. We could save the existing neighborhoods, keep the pressure off them, get the rate of change down to zero. We literally had a rate of change bylaw, but only because we were prepared to rezone and accommodate growth in a place of intense change. Uh, And we were able to do that, I think, uh, up to about 2000. So all the mega projects, we had seven of them happening simultaneously. Coal Harbor, Concord Pacific, Collingwood Village, Arbutus Gardens, Fraser Lands, way more than people realized. And, and literally thousands of units were coming onto the market every year. Uh, no scarcity. Uh, until we didn't. And then you could just feel the pressure going back on to the existing neighborhoods and to places like the West End, accompanied by a tsunami of money, of wealth, and hence changed expectations. Now, a whole bunch of reasons why that happened or maybe exaggerated, but regardless, uh, Effectively, in the last year, that issue has been settled, and certainly the new council reflects that, but it hasn't changed the spectrum between the preservationists and the urbanists, 
we have not yet had the reconciliation of those interests around changes that we're actually prepared to make to the zoning and development bylaw, what we do on the ground. And that's the job of this council, and good luck to them. Right. Do you have any thoughts on the next? It's an interesting kind of idea that we haven't heard that much about on on this podcast, at least where there's almost Yale Town is almost a valve to release the pressure on places like the West End. Is there? That's a council's job. Yeah. And obviously the West Side seems to me uh, an example of an area where there's been a lot of speculation, a lot of houses that were empty at one time. Uh, Where's well, the no. next year? Not. No, no. What actually happened first, and this is an important story too, yeah. is that we were able to accommodate a significant increase in density of units without changing the scale or character. This is Brent Totteron's observation, the previous city planner. People are prepared for three kinds of density. Invisible density, secondary suite. Right. From the outside, you see no change at all. Hidden density, a lane cottage in the back. From the street, you still don't see any difference. And gentle density. Uh, something that fits the character scale of the neighborhood. Well, the West Side went through real significant change in invisible and hidden density twice. Uh, when I was on council, as I mentioned previously, uh, you didn't touch the, the single-family neighborhoods for the reasons I mentioned. But it got to the point where almost everybody, because they had to have an illegal suite to cover off mortgage, you know, the students or whatever, they were finally ready for change. And when they were, Council one night, not mine, but one night they rezoned all of the RS1 for secondary suites. And there was about half a dozen people showed up and they were in favor of it. Mm -hmm. That would have been unthinkable, unimaginable when I was on council. And yet it happened within about a 10-year period. Same with lane cottages. You started off, as we did with secondary suites, with literally a block or two that was prepared to interchange the the differences so put in the legalize the secondary suite likewise with lane cottages you start them off see how it works tweak it a little and and then see how the market responds and needless to say within a few years a couple of thousand lane cottages now they're just standard mm -hmm. well it's going through that process of increment incremental change again acknowledging scale and character uh when a neighborhood is ready for it but if you try to go in <laughs> You will just give the neighborhood the thing that they need for political organization, something to fight someone to hate. And and I will say that if this council thinks that they're going to do a citywide rezoning in the sense that they can go in and rezone this entire place effectively from top to bottom, not a chance. And they shouldn't set up the expectations. Way too much political capital you have to spend, way too much process, and it's easy to fight. So what's the challenge? What neighborhoods... And I'm going to ask you this question. What neighborhoods are ready for change? What would be the best place to go first to try out new forms of housing, more choices, try and get some restoration of at least minimal affordability, if not actually really begin to, to crack that nut? Want to venture a guess, Matt? <laughs> I'm trying to think. I mean, my neighborhood strikes... It, I live in Grandview, I mean, obviously, we've been rezoned RT. We're staying RT in in the area that I'm in. Didn't want change in scale of character, did you? Right. No. Right. The, the left's there. This shows this is not a right or left thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, we went into the place where you would think they would be willing from a social point of view to accommodate. Oh, no. No. Same stuff. Hey, why don't you go uh, down to Clark? Yeah. We'll, we'll tolerate some change down there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that should tell us something. <laughs> yeah. 
what about, I mean, I'm just thinking out loud here, but what about the, the main arteries here? And what about like Hastings Sunrise? What about uh, well, Fraser? We're doing that. Oak. Yeah. Oak. Uh, you know, you can be night. There's walls going up along Canby now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I mean, Canby is a great example of that, obviously. But yeah. So why do you think that's acceptable? That, we ask the questions around here. <laughs> <laughs> I have some, I have some guesses, but, uh, Oh, I can say it. <laughs> go, go ahead. You're buffering the single family. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're putting the density along the arterials, the noisiest, once most polluted places, the place for mixed use. But you're keeping the purity, the white on the RS1. So, uh, I don't even think it's white anymore. But it doesn't matter. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, the sense of status. Right. Which, by the way, zoning and development is always about. Uh, it's really important to know that when you're dealing with the physical form and land use, this is about status. Not solely, but importantly. And there's no, way, no, no value in my mind shying away from that. It's an important part of determining what the values are. So, so in just so I understand in terms of because it's interesting. Often, I think when you have conversations about density, people are thinking like Brentwood, for example, where a SkyTrain line. Then there's you know, fifteen towers going up, uh, and the scale is so dramatic. Fifteen's uh, actually there's more than that, and fifty stories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it sounds like you're talking uh, in the city of Vancouver, at least that the gentle density and this kind of invisible density that it's the incremental changes actually in existing neighborhoods in yeah. existing neighborhoods. Brentwood was not an existing Brentwood is basically like the Yale town. Yes. Uh, yeah. Example. And right. That That's was like the deal the that Burnaby yeah. struck back in the seventies when they designated, I think it was five locations for quote apartment districts. Right. The first of which was Metro town, which was basically literally big boxes, a Ford factory, a Sears warehouse. And, and because they stuck with that over time, and, and they had done the deal. The single-family neighborhoods would accept density in places that didn't touch them directly. Right. And it was coordinated with rapid transit. Right. But there's but in Vancouver now, there's no... I'm trying to think of an area like Brentwood or like Yale Town in 84, say. Like, there's no, there is no area like that, right? So it's oh, yeah, basically, there is. Where? where I'll um, give you two or three. Okay. Jericho. UEL. Heatherlands. Some of the Fraser, and guess guess who? Some, some of the Fraser for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, and guess who is basically going to be the big players for all of that? First Nations. And as we saw with Sawasan, if they actually have ownership of the land, what we would call ownership, they can do practically anything they want. They're not yeah. governed by the zoning and development bylaws of the municipalities they're in. Right. That's not going to be the case with Jericho. That. The relationship with Canada lands has been determined. And, and I'm really optimistic that, that we're going to see some good things. But uh, that's a new reality that we really do have to take in ca- uh, into account. Mike Harcourt has said this. Most of the growth, if we maintain the status of the existing single-family neighborhoods, will be on the west side of the city. Mm-hmm. That's why he's a big advocate of even not just getting an extension of the Millennium Line or to UBC. He thinks eventually we may be talking two parallel Transit lines, uh, as Expo line gets saturated, we may have to build an express line. I mean, that's forward thinking. That's why I always like Harcourt for coming up with these ideas. But that does show you that sometimes change is impossible, possible is in ways that you don't anticipate. And I would go back to that question I'm asking you. Where are neighborhoods that we don't think of at this point that actually might be ready for change? I think like Southeast Vancouver, obviously, I think is, is... And let me say that so that we won't edit it. (laughs) Southeast Vancouver, I think. 
Yeah. Uh, but what are you thinking of when you say Southeast Vancouver? What's <laughs> no. in your What's in your head? Oh, now you're trying to get the this is this is becoming a geography lesson. Let me bring up the map. <laughs> Realtors no, I, are. Real, yeah. Realtors are on the ground geographers. Yeah, yeah. Social, no, and, I, social and, and economic geographers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that there's definitely areas you, you can you can think of like River District and and a lot of the new developments, master plan communities in areas where it's highly industrial, um, vacant lands, a lot of... Um, That's not what I'm thinking. What were you thinking? Uh, Vancouver Special Land. I'm thinking that so much of that stock is now into its second and third generation, it's ready for change, and the owners and the people who live in it may be ready as well. This is where the ethnic middle classes emerged. The people who migrated to this town in the 50s and 60s, uh, South Asians in particular, the builders, the Vancouver Special was a brilliant, brilliant uh, way of achieving a form of accommodation that could be cheaply built by, by basic labor, of which they had, to provide for extended families. Of course, it was illegal. Everybody knew secondary suites were illegal and Vancouver specials worked brilliantly. And I think that housing stock is ready for change in communities that may quite be willing to do what we did in Carisdale in the 1950s. What are your thoughts then in that same Oh, you're just going to let that one go? <laughs> no, but I... What I, did we I, do in Carisdale? Yeah, yeah. oh. <laughs> no, well, I, was, I was thinking more so... So what about Renfrew and Renfrew Heights then as well? I mean, ah, another good one. Are, those, are, those are perfect areas they where are. you think of... Absolutely. That, that similar trajectory. Yeah, right? uh, with new transit, uh, new kind of job opportunities. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, again, this is where consultation really does make a difference. Let's go in there and, as they say, have the conversation. Uh, are you ready for change? And you may well find that people are more than ready for change because they realize, A, they can cash out on this. There will be direct benefit. But B, they can see that their housing needs are changing as they age, certainly for their children. And yes, if if you're able to start that conversation right at the beginning with those basic questions, you may well be able to move to... And I will use the Caresdale model here. You think of Caresdale, what do you think of? Nice, green, leafy streets with upper middle class housing rapidly evolving into McMansions. But in the 1950s, around 41st Avenue, three blocks on either side, we built a 1950s version of the streetcar neighborhood, West End style. And it works brilliantly today. It's a compact community organized around retail services and transit. And it ideally serves people who are aging in place. You can go from your house to an apartment in Caresdale, stay in your community, be better serviced, more walkability. It's brilliant. Could we do the same thing, for instance, around Memorial Park? Could we do it in the slopes up from the Fraser? Are there opportunities? Not talk about a massive rezoning. Go in there and look strategically at a place where you might actually be able to do something, appropriately scale whatever that is, but really fundamental. Yeah, we are taking down the existing housing stock. We are doing it block by block. Yes, we actually know how this works. And we can do it better and, and be confident that it's going to be a success. As Canadians, as city builders, as designers, and particularly in Vancouver, we're really good at this. Mm-hmm. We know it works. That issue was settled by the time we came out of the mega project era, particularly along False Creek. The problem we ran into is we did it so well, it became basically a commodity in the global market. 
So, so it sounds like it just thinking as to the idea of the city plan and the block by block kind of Jane Jacobs. It sounds like you're clearly in one on one side of this. There's there's a method that this has worked before. And this is the strategy moving forward, right? In a, in a way that's appropriate for the circumstances we're in, and I'm not going to pretend to say that I understand that. So this is where generational change comes in. Right. But you can certainly see along Ian Bushfield's spectrum between preservationist and urbanist. Young people are moving more now towards the urbanist because they see it as their only hope mm-hmm. if they want a place in this city. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there are many, at least, again, there'll be polarization on this issue because it is so political. For many, they are getting angry at the fact that people like me are staying in place and and basically don't want to be taxed, don't want additional change, want the services and the wealth to continue to be consolidated. There's just a fundamental sense of unfairness. Mm-hmm. And I think I already know the answer to this, but I just want to ask it anyways. Why, why do you think the East Side, specifically Renfrew, Renfrew Heights, are going to be more open to change in their neighborhoods? Well, uh, there's no substitute for doing what I did when I first moved to this city. And I got in my bike and I just started doing concentric rings around downtown just to take a look at at what was there. This is where I I first saw that this city is going to change ethnically, fundamentally. What I saw as I moved into the southeast quadrant in particular is I very much, as a white guy, became a minority. But I saw that they were basically still aspiring to a middle-class way of life. Uh, Culturally, there was very little difference. Every group that came here is basically reinventing themselves as kind of suburban Canadians. Uh, and that's what ethnoburbs are. The South Asian people moved to Newton. Uh, number three road, Koreans in Coquitlam, uh, Persians in North and West Vancouver. They're still doing the Canadian dream thing, but their attitude to change may be different. And if the housing stock is deteriorating, it's no longer servicing their needs. It may be easier to speak to that community if the timing is right. And I don't know the answer to that, but I think it would be far help more helpful to go in there and find communities that are prepared to entertain it than to naively think you could do a mass rezoning, arguably in the name of fairness. Every community from Shaughnessy to the West End will take a fair amount of growth. That's the word you get, fair. Don't mm-hmm. say what that is. They just say it should be fairly distributed. Same with social services. I'll, I'll give you another heads up here to watch for. If... Uh, the majority of the people of the city believe that what this council is really doing is is wanting to use social justice, the word I'm hearing now is spatial justice, to bring the social problems that we have concentrated in certain areas, downtown east side most particularly, more broadly into the community. That will poison the atmosphere right from the beginning. So don't go there. Mm-hmm. At the same time, then, this is why I say you have to be upfront about recognizing status and aspiration. You then want to go to those communities that really do see that they could benefit directly at the time of life or in the evolution of their community where they're real, willing to change, and then, then devote the resources to them. You're going to get the amenities. We are going to put more of our capital dollars where you're willing to accept change. And then as a consequence, you're saying to other communities, look, you want to live with the status quo? We're going to concentrate our resources, our planning on places that aren't. I can say that. So the care they can, but that's yeah. basically what you're coming down to. <laughs> Just kind of pulling back a bit and talking about the supply issue. You've, you were on council for 15 years. 
you've watched the way that the city has transformed over the, uh, the you know the past couple decades in terms of the supply versus uh, you know restricting demand creating supply debate right now the tensions are at actually an no high. we never had that debate well how didn't have I, to. how warrant so the debate today how how much of us are we in a supply crisis in in compared to former years oh god there's never been anything like this okay no, this is this is uh, this, unprecedented is an overused word, but it's so your times in your times in council then this was not uh, this was not dominating the discourse the same way it would be today. One of the nice things about being old enough is you can see the cycles. So I can remember eighty one. I can remember the crash that occurred. Uh, I benefited from it because that was the time I was able to get into the housing market. Uh, I can remember the mid nineties. I can remember again seeing that there would be these cycles of change and. And if I really did pay attention, I could I could correlate that with earlier commitments that we'd made, or 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 where the builders and the the real estate industry was in their cycle as well. You guys have cycles. It's just we've been on this long, unprecedented one uh, that we really can't imagine who who does that it's going to end or change or alter, even as we're in the process of doing that. Okay, what does that mean for city council? Don't get into it. You don't know what interest rates are going to be. You don't know what the changing migration patterns. You don't know what the geopolitical outcomes of our time are going to be. You've got to focus on those basic things. What are your capital plans? Where are you, where are you laying the pipes? What's your maintenance budget for ensuring that those pipes don't fail? Just make sure that we have the police and the fire at a level of expectation. If you've done that, that's 80% of the job. And then the planning, correlate it with, yes, coordinate it as you're required to do with a regional plan. Yes, take that, quote, fair share of regional growth. Have a, yes, a planning strategy. You don't even have to have a, quote, ODP or traditional plan to do this. You just have to know that under the current rate of change, you will be able to accommodate what we have historically seen, about 40,000 people per year, and more or less work with that, knowing you're never going to get it exactly right. But if you do those basic things, then you've done, as far as I'm concerned, you've done your basic job. Doesn't stop the politics. Won't, won't deal with all of the neighborhood conflicts. Won't necessarily deal with the anxieties. Won't deal with necessarily surprises. But at least you know that you have done something that has served this city so well for so long, and no one has really come up with something better. The rate of change, however, if you disrupt it, Recognize that you are going to induce a lot, a lot of back. Uh, you're going to produce a lot of reaction. I know that realtors and the developers would like to say, hey, just speed up the process at City Hall. Get us our permits. We'll do the job. We can do the supply if you just unleash us or at least you know, make provision for it. And yeah, that'd be nice if it was true, but it's not. It's simply not true because we've had lots of supply. The realtors, the developers simply have not been able to say into the conversation about this city why it hasn't worked. And they're not prepared to have that discussion. We have put off talking about foreign capital, concerned as we are about issues of racism, legitimate. We are not aware of the degree of corruption that we now are, didn't have that conversation, didn't acknowledge it exists. There's no trust there. This is a real crisis of confidence, I think, in the development community. They may not have yet fully recognized. But this council, I think they're coming around. But un, until you go back to recognizing that the job of the city is to provide 
change and a, a way that doesn't disrupt existing communities and provides for at least the ongoing rate of change that according to your, your plans and visions you are appropriately doing, I think trying to go in and just flood the market with supply, I, I haven't seen evidence that that's going to necessarily one-to-one deliver what's being expected. You guys may have a different feel about no, that. No, <laughs> that's, that, that's, no, that's no. I think you you've kind of put your finger on something that everyone's been feeling, uh, or at least I think Adam would agree with me. The crisis of confidence Absolutely. in the development community. God, yeah, it's a uh, it's kind of an amazing moment where uh, you know. <laughs> No one can say anything without the cynicism around development is is unbelievable. And they earned it. <laughs> yeah, it, but but so where do we go from here? Where it sounds like we're all on the same page in terms of building more supply. At some point, there's been uh, well ten different policy shifts in terms of demand and trying to chart supply where the money's of, coming from. Supply and, of what? Well, that's that's part of it, right? I think is it's so. What it sounds like you're getting at, perhaps maybe I'm reading into this, but is we need to take a good look at at the type of supply that we're creating. And clearly, it sounds like you're uh, perhaps more affordable housing and rental housing in the in the market is is necessary. Oh, that word affordable. Yeah, but well, but also yeah. though, I mean, we've we've had a lot of developers on the show. We've had John Stovell on the show. We've had uh, folks from Cressy and other developers who, at least recently, are talking about pulling back. Everyone's talking about pulling back and and not interested. It strikes me as a situation where if there's a crisis of confidence, that's fine, but those are the guys who know how to build, right? There's an, there's they know how to build a certain kind of product. And they've done really, really well out of it. Right. So, so, but what, it's hard to imagine what, what you're imagining for the future here in terms of what that new type of product looks like and who's going to build it. And, and where the money comes to build it and where the care it is for the people building it. Do you think I could make money if I did? <laughs> Yeah, Ser- yeah, serious yeah, question. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah. Well, well, if John Stavell pulls back, do you think there is someone who might come in? I wouldn't be worried in the least about what those guys tell me. If there is opportunity and money to be made in the city of Vancouver in in twenty nineteen twenty, uh, the, uh, there will be people there. Tell me what the interest rates are going to be. Yeah. You know, tell me what the migration job opportunities are going to be. That's that's far more significant. But in the context of a city, my job, again, are these basic fundamentals, the fundamentals, providing you with an opportunity to do that, whether you choose to do it, I'd be pretty confident someone will. And, and we're laying out, I don't think there's any doubt about what City Hall wants. They just want more affordable housing. And from that, they mean right down to the bottom, the people in the downtown east side would otherwise be shelterless. Thank you, mobile homes. Right up to what we would call uh, above middle income. Right. Somewhere in there. And and clearly, we need a broader range of choices to do it. But look, there is a solution to this that every society finds if somebody doesn't build. And they crowd. And we've done that uh, at least one major time in our history. And that was from... uh, 1929 to about 1945. We didn't build anything. The Depression and the war. Right. So the West End, oh, you'll love, you guys like data? 
I got some data for you. <laughs> so the population of the West End now is about 40,000 people in that square mile. Uh-huh. What do you think the population was in about 1951? I'm guessing it was more dense than it is today. Uh, not quite. Not <laughs> yeah. quite. But there wasn't any high-rises. Right, there, okay. were, there were a few of those old streetcar apartment buildings. A lot of single-family. Two-and-a-half-story wood-frame houses. Vancouver yeah. was special of the 1890s, 1900s. It was around 21, 22,000. After the high-rise boom in the 60s, the pop, uh, unit count went up. Five times. We quintupled the housing stock. Didn't even double the population. What happened? We uncrowded. People were living in attics and basement suites. The whole, every house had been divided up. They were boarding houses. We crowded. People who came in to serve the war industries found any accommodation they could. We would do that again. In fact, we are. I'm pretty confident and sane because I take the Robson bus that a lot of those English as a second language students are sharing maybe four, five, six to a one-bedroom apartment. They do what they have to do, and we would do that again as well. That makes the population more than ready for change. We would not be having a debate about whether we should be rezoning neighborhoods to provide accommodation. And again, going back to Ian Bushfield's scale, that's where the build more housing, that's where the YIMBY constituency is coming from. Don't care what it is, just build it. Developers saying, let us do that, comes up against the preservationists. And I'm in both camps. Let us definitely build more, but recognize those values that is the DNA of this city and recognize, yes, when we do it, we are good at it. Yes, it takes process. Yes, it takes time. Yes, it is going to be expensive. doesn't mean unaffordable. It just means expensive. But it's a, it's a way we regulate the rate of change so that it's tolerable. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, Same thing, by the way, with permits. People talk about we should be able to see, uh, look, the permit system is meant to regulate the rate of change. If we did actually speed it up, you would create, in many cases, a blowback you would not like. Mm-hmm. So uh, in a way that kind of moderates it, if it's too slow, of course, if there's high demand, you want to adjust so that you do get that stuff out the door. But not in such a way that basically you're just opening up the city to change in a way that creates anxiety. So can you just speak a little bit more about, I mean, you've talked about the crisis of confidence in the development community. Can you... Oh, it's worse than that now. Okay. Can you... But it sounds like on one side, I'm hearing kind of crowding and building more. They don't care whatever it is. We need more housing, right? That's kind of the what I'm understanding. One end of the spectrum. Yeah. But there seems like there's a real dislike or cynicism of the way the development community has been doing it. Can we just, because you've been in the city for a oh, long time and you've been watching just how it's changed and, and what the problems yeah, are. Can you in, kinda, oh, in the well, last year, it has changed. How corrupt are we? Yeah. How corrupt are we? Where's this money coming from? Who is it? How's it polluting us? I, I, I'm in this connection to fentanyl, to laundered money, now that it's just not anecdote. Uh-huh. This... But are we talking about kind of the Sam well, Coopers? We're, we're all being affected by it. Yeah. It gets worse. It, get, it will get much worse when we see... Uh, okay, run with me on this one. <laughs> I'm going to go a little outside the box here. So when Robert Mueller's report comes out on Trump, if it details his financial industries and his connections to the Russians in particular, basically Trump was in the business of providing a mechanism for money to be laundered. That was the purpose of his condos and his connections to the oligarchs and that whole crew. That was what Cohen and his lawyers were doing. It was making those deals so that there was ways to launder money. His name is on a building in Vancouver. Is there a connection? 
Probably. Again, it's just going to be, and now, like with fentanyl, with, uh, we've moved into international-scale corruption. Now, I am not saying that the development industry is corrupt in that sense. I'm just saying it's going to be hard to tell the difference. We're, we've all, in effect, become polluted by this. That's a crisis. That's changing confidence. That's increasing cynicism. So that's what we've got a lot of work to do. I don't quite yet know what the strategy of the NDP is in not having a commission. The German report will be helpful. Uh, and as more data comes out and the stories turn from anecdote to demonstrated cases, uh, that it's going to worsen this. And in a sense, I think we do have to purge it. And there does within the industry, whether it's real estate or development, planning, uh, politics, we've, we've got to take this one on. We're way past the point where we can just let this lie and hope it goes away. So how do you then deal with change and development in that context where people will have all the ammunition they need to say this is just, again, we're selling ourselves out, we're corrupt, the people that we're financing this are selling it to are corrupt. This is, this is bad, bad stuff, and, and we're going to have to come to grips with it. I, I agree. And I mean, all you have to do is, is look through the comment section of any Facebook post on housing <laughs> to uh, understand exactly what you're getting at. I guess I guess I'd like to talk a little bit about kind of pulling back. And it's more so the idea of kind of the missing middle for people that want home ownership, they want to own homes. Developers, obviously, the, the cost of land in Vancouver has skyrocketed to the point that you can almost only build luxury product if you're going to be buying a parcel of land downtown, say, for example. So, so take that value. Okay. So get, get that value. That's the purpose of CACs. Right, right. Why do we have this uh, form of zoning and development where in order to make any change, you have to do a spot rezoning uh, so the city can appropriate the value? Sure, sure. Uh, we are the creators of wealth. We do it when we lay the pipe, when we put in the road or the transit line, give access to land. That's basically the job. And then after that, the yes, the market will increase the value depending upon that sense of scarcity. But the difference between that value determined by the market and what you could do if you increase density, that's what we appropriate, 60, 70, 80%. That's what happened under my council. That's what Gordon Campbell did. He recognized as a developer that we were creating value, and that was a public value that could be used again, for basic service, everything from basic services, that's more development cost charges, right, to providing more amenity to the increased population, fund those basic things, and and the luxuries that we as a community, as the public shares, amazing environment that we live in. Uh, okay, how do you get that land value? It's not enough just to say that land is too expensive to build on. No, 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 no. If you want, you can appropriate that value and put it back into affordability. That's what I think council was trying to do with the stir projects and rentals. They were trying to transfer the value from the increase in density, the land, that's the way we measured it, to achieve a greater level of affordability, more choices, missing middle. Was that the correct response? I think it was incremental, but clearly it wasn't enough. And who can judge as to whether they could have been successful politically? The public just has a sense that they were selling out to the developers. And you know, it's a bit difficult to argue that when development provides, developers provide 90, what, 8%? Have you heard this? Let me say this about that. 
This idea that the developers are the people who are causing the problem is spectacularly naive, or that somehow the government could go in and begin to build the housing that's needed. That's not our culture. That's not our system. That would not end well. The any moving forward is going to have to be done as a kind of part as a partnership. Now, it, sometimes it's involuntary. The private sector has no choice but to be subject to the regulatory conditions of, of City Hall. But City Hall can't do it themselves. I think that's what the past council recognized and was trying to deal with, but they got overtaken. Do you look outside of Vancouver at other cities? Oh, sure. And and I'm curious, what's a city that um, that that you watch or monitor and that can can inform where we go from here? And and the flip side of that, um, a city that you know, there's Vancouver's compared to many different cities around the globe that have been seen an influx of global capital. It, it, something that's kind of akin to Vancouver right now, but. Not to override his question. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you're talking cities of 8 million, 10 million, <laughs> how did we end up being compared to them? The, the cities that I would look to locally who share similar culture, basically similar economies, you're talking Seattle, Portland. Historically, if you're looking around affordability, you would look at places like Vienna, Red Vienna, uh, Berlin, um, Copenhagen. You'd look at the European model and just see, but again, when you really begin to realize what it would mean to go to that model. It, it's just not something that you can see, imagine, really happening here unless there are some very fundamental changes in the culture. Uh, I would look to other municipalities in the region. This idea that Vancouver, the 44 square miles to the west of Boundary Road, should, quote, solve its housing problem, that's simply not possible. Just not possible. We don't have the land. Uh, or the uh, willingness, or nor should we, accept the rate of change that would be required to do that, to reduce the rate of scarcity, the sense of scarcity that would allow us to get housing prices back to what they were two or three decades ago. Not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So we are, are reliant on the ability of other municipalities in the region, structured around the livable region plan, the growth, whatever we call it these days. And, and as near as I can tell, that actually works pretty well. This idea that somehow it's a hardship for people who can't live in Vancouver to have to go two SkyTrain stops down the line and end up in Brentwood or Gilmore or Edmonds. Sorry, I don't think that that's a reasonable expectation. What we're looking for, and I would say this is a challenge now, is to what is somewhere between no rate of change or change in scale and character and the one a variety of communities are willing to accept sometimes around the Caresdale model, significant change in scale, uh, to reduce that sense of scarcity to the point where both economically and structurally the missing middle is provided for. It's going to remain expensive because people don't want a decline in the value of their major asset that would return affordability to something that it was in the past. But they don't want to see that it's so high and will continue to stay high that it prices almost everybody else uh, so that it changes the social and economic character of the city. I think that's solvable. And in fact, it might even be simply be solved by the change in the interest rates. Just, yeah, okay, maybe a little bubble picking, but not so great that it explodes in our face. Can we do that? Can we have a soft landing? We might be in the midst of it. I've already started writing that I think the housing crisis as we knew it is over. I think the parameters are changing both on the supply and the demand side, sufficient to say that in a year or two, we might not have to have this conversation. 
there'll be a sense already that the dynamics have changed. The supply is beginning to come in. It's having an effect that we are addressing questions around the non-market end of it. There's a lot of money coming into that now. It, it really is a dilemma around these, uh, polit- these questions when government does respond, when the plans are in place and change begins to occur, but the advocates don't want to acknowledge it. I really thought this was the case with the, the housing, the non-market housing community. They never felt comfortable acknowledging success. No matter how much you did, the most you would get is, well, it's a good first, it's a beginning, you know, keep going, you got to do a lot more, you never solve the problem. And they think politically that, okay, if I, if I keep the pressure on, you know, the politicians will continue to address and funnel resources. It works the other way around. If you give me acknowledgement of success, if you cut that ribbon for me, have a T-shirt and a cake, we did this with bike routes, uh, I, I want to do more of that. Mm-hmm. If, if you make it so that I'm going to get full recognition of both the political and real capital that we spend to address a problem, you will get more of it. So acknowledge success. When you do see a really tangible improvement, wave the flag. Let people know so that they don't have this constant, cynical, dispiriting sense that these are unsolvable problems or that they're caused by just a, a, such a corrupt society that there really is no hope. And, and before you know it, you're into Trumpism. Tear it all down. Just throw the grenade. Let it blow up. Got to start again. I mean, bad, bad things. Mm-hmm. And we can that's, see that. That's such a good point. That's, I, I feel like Vancouver seldom celebrates its wins. <laughs> we do in retrospect. We do, yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm now of a time, the NPA council of the area, the, yeah, golden age, say something. Oh, yeah, we are. Uh, they didn't say that at the time. <laughs> right, right. So thinking about that, what major infrastructure projects that the city of Vancouver is currently um, promoting or working on? What what are you excited about? Okay, apocalypse time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One of the things uh, that I did that I, I, in retrospect, I'm very proud of was uh, a report called Clouds of Change. We were the first municipality in North America, who knows, maybe the world, who really did take on climate change. Uh, the task force on atmospheric change. And we laid out strategies that did work their way into the culture of City Hall. But uh, by the time I left council, it was certainly a recognition that we didn't take that seriously. And we're not. We're all soft denialists. I fly to places. (laughs) I've already changed my lifestyle. Well, it's so hard, right? It's very, very hard. It's funny. Like I just heard an academic saying, oh, I only fly once a year. I used to fly conferences all over the place. But it's... Yeah. I'm leaving at Christmas. Yeah. It's real. What, yeah. I mean, it's so hard. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Go on. It is so hard. We're not going to change. Yeah. And we're simply waiting now. Yeah. We're waiting for what we hoped would not affect us in our lifetimes. Eh, by the end of the century. A century. Yeah, okay. Well, now technology will solve us. Somebody, whatever. I, I got things I got to worry about. Oh, well, it's not working out that way. <sighs> that That's smoke. Yeah. That's smoke. It was apocalyptic. It was the stuff from science fiction in the 1950s about a world coming to an end. It was like that. And you can just feel the anxiety, the storms, the fires. It, it, it's apocalyptic scale stuff. And it's going to get worse. Yeah. We know now. I mean, if no has any meaning in a world that does rely on science, we now know that this is going to get a lot worse and it's going to happen faster 
and it's going to affect us personally. I want a city to continue to be a leader in that. Gregor and his council came in with that mandate, Greener City, didn't get a credit for it. And this is typically the case when a council that's expected to do something actually does. Fun fact, how many, what percent of promises that politicians make do they actually deliver on? Political yeah, science has been done on this. I think yeah. that's a very low percentage, I would imagine. About no. 80. 80. Really? Yeah, yeah, it's high. It's no, high. This is, this is, I remember people saying about Trump, like he's, he's actually doing things he said he was going to do, and everybody's surprised. Yeah. Like, it's like actually people do deliver on their promises. This is what this council's doing. Yeah. Way too much. They're just bringing in motions and starting to roll it out. Gordon Campbell Council I was on, that's what we did for the first half year. At the beginning of your term, you can really deliver on this stuff. The organization's waiting for it. The public expects it. You defeated your opponents. But, but the only thing about this council is it's so, although potentially not as divided as I as I thought, mm-hmm. right? See. Yeah, I mean, it, because it's such a mixed bag, it was like, I think that was the problem when people were going to vote. It was like, throw up your hands. And then when the results came in, at least... I felt like we followed it fairly closely, and I was like, what does this mean? I don't know. What does it mean? Is that, yeah, is is this going to be a bottleneck? And We don't know. We've never had it before. Uh, Mike Harcourt didn't have uh, the party of Civic NDP with a majority, but going back to, I'm pretty confident in saying, to the late 30s when the party system emerged, there hasn't been a mayor who did not have a majority, or uh, the party that got the majority wasn't able to implement its program. I sat on councils that had working majorities through that 15 years. I highly recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> but it does provide two things. It allows you to implement your agenda, and it allows you continuity. It allows you to implement it over time. That combination of Gordon Campbell and Philip Owen was a remarkable time for real interesting structural and policy changes that we allowed to work out over time. And we had staff that we had confidence in, and they had confidence that we weren't going to change things profoundly in that time and and the and the development community had the same confidence that's why i say it was a kind of golden age things were clicking along very nicely so you're always kind of looking for something like that well we don't have a working majority this will be kennedy stewart's real test of leadership Mm -hmm. can he continue to construct them Uh, and we're getting some sense of it already i just Posted it today on the on Gene Swanson's motion. Right. Now, Gene comes from the far left by any reasonable standard, and her motions, with some amendment, were passed by a well, it was unanimous. That's a very interesting indication of how far things have already shifted. Now, divisions will occur unquestionably, and I think I'm watching again how they strategize the city plan. But there's some indications that uh, that. They're a reflection of a city that's changed, and so the city is willing to accept change that, again, would have almost been undiscussable even a, certainly a previous but generation. It's, but it's interesting because that Gene Swanson's motion was around tenants' rights, right? Right. And it's hard to figure out, you know, we're talking about the traditional left and right and then urbanist, preservationist. This is kind of an interesting um, where it sits on kind of the way that we think about politics is is kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. And yeah. it's just the beginning. Yeah. So let's wind back a bit here. <clears throat> this, this council is beginning to implement an agenda of significant change, and we'll see where that goes. But you asked me what I would like to see. I do think as a matter of uh, adaption and uh, response uh, to this existential issue of climate change, uh, we'd better start getting serious about that. Yeah. 
And, and we really are back to those fundamentals I talked about. Where are you putting the sewage treatment plant? How are you going to protect, whether it's from rising waters or uh, storms or conditions that we haven't had to deal with? How are you going to, how are you going to stop Stanley Park from burning down? Let's just make it nice and personal. We've seen paradise burn to the ground in California. Could it happen here? Well, in some form, it is going to. It already has. That's what that smoke meant. So the leadership that will have to emerge and our willingness as a society to respond, how we allocate those resources, that's the fundamental stuff. And it's not a matter, I think, of whether I would like to see it. We're human beings. We will respond to crisis. But I do think I'm looking for generals. I saw, I met one the other day, a young woman from Copenhagen who was coming here to look at how we do sustainability issues. And the question I had from her to her was, are you a general? Are you able to provide the leadership to mobilize the resources to deal with a threat that analogously is kind of like war? And, but do you not, it's interesting you use general because I, I was thinking about this the other day. It seems almost like democracy and maybe this is a democracy is not capable of responding to this to generals like, well no but you're using a kind of like there has to be kind of a more authoritarian turn to actually deal with something like this liberal democracies are definitely under threat yeah. uh china has certainly established that yeah the idea that uh with economic prosperity free trade free movement of people and ideas and money that we would all move towards uh well that was a nice ideal but in the New York face Times of, is talking about this. I don't know if you listen to the Daily, but literally this morning I was just listening on the way over. But sorry, continue. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, it's a fair discussion. But this is an existential threat. This one looks as though it could threaten the existence. Yes, of certainly of our civilization, our economy. Maybe, maybe our existence. It doesn't help to exaggerate. Nature is doing that for us. The threat is real, and it manifests itself in ways that are undeniable. Denialism effectively becomes irrelevant. Uh, yeah, uh, the Koch brothers and all the rest of it may still proclaim whatever they wish to proclaim, unless you have a response to changing conditions that we feel, literally how much rain there is and what conditions there are, the survival of species, dealing with all of these externalities now that we are going to have to incorporate into our thinking I'd still argue we can do that. We're good at it. We've created this wholly remarkable place. Very good conditions, mid-latitude, mild climate, well-located. But if we can't take that on, and we are, what hope is there? So in a sense, our responsibility for leadership, the generation of that kind of general that we will need for the mobilization of people and resources, that's what I would look to now. Uh, I'm not going to be around for it. But I'm pretty confident that it's the kind of thing that we, our culture, can do. Are actually doing. So for me, yeah, bike routes. Yeah, okay, let's take that one. I can't have a conversation without bike routes, at least up until recently. <laughs> what was all that about? Why did it unleash those emotional forces, particularly among men of a certain age, well, and and among uh, what's her name? Why? Yeah, I mean, way young. She, why young? Right. I mean, she's uh, the NPA tried it out. Now, yeah. interestingly, it never really had an electoral advantage for them, but they still felt because the emotions were so strong. So I, I wondered this too because I've been associated with with cycling in the city since I was on council, and I knew it wasn't about bike routes. 
Yeah. In the scheme of things, that's relatively minor. And my important change, nice change, but minor. No, it, it was about uh, the, this underlying anxiety, this existential change, this meaning of status and power, uh, territoriality. Uh, whose city is it for? Uh, why are you taking away my road space that I paid through for my taxes so those yahoos in spandex get to you know basically give me the thumb? It, it, it unleashed a minor sense, I think, but nonetheless, something indicative. And so as we go through these questions around who the city is for, of how we're going to build and plan for it, what will be the acceptable rate of change? And then we have to deal more profoundly with this global threat, whether it's economic, geopolitical, or climate. It's going to test our leadership, our social cohesion, this diverse society. And, and on that, out of a sense of apocalyptic despair... <laughs> I'd actually think we're going to do pretty good on that front. I look at the generation now and the way that they're thinking. I look at the success of what we've been able to do in the change of our culture. Uh, I look at the discussions that we're having. I look at our wealth and our opportunity. And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, this is the place you want to try it out. If you want to be a general in this kind of army, this is a really good place. It's not going to be good for affordability, though. Could be because we're we're going to continue to just be a victim of our own success. I think if 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 we if we I, I'm just thinking like let's let's just think about Vancouver as a a, a moderate climate as a green very walkable place, green yeah. space. I mean, everybody in the world is going to want to continue at to least come here. Politically stable for the time being. How good are we at how good are we at favela? You know what a favela is? Yeah, in Brazil, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. up on the slopes of Rio. And, and they're in in uh, a good number of cities, uh, probably most in Africa and yeah, in Latin America. Latin there, America. Yeah. The Chinese are one of the few places that kind of build uh, their own purpose-built favela. Uh, but how good are we at? at? And we probably will be dealing with favela for the rich, relative rich. I can easily imagine. Again, try and avoid being too apocalyptic, but it just seems to me these are pretty reasonable examples uh, under. Elevated conditions of heat for much longer, it's perfectly reasonable to think that the electrical grid in, say, Arizona, Southwest America could fail, in which case you got a lot of dead people. You're not going to be able to survive for very long if you haven't got air conditioning. And what's going to be the thought of those people? Where do I go to find a cool green place? So we could, yes, be dealing with the movement of hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people. Uh, that's already happened, sub-Saharan Africa. They've had to get out of there. They wanted to get to Europe. They did and destabilize that, that continent effectively, geopolitically. Something similar to happen here? More than likely. So how are we going to respond? Well, we will respond. We will respond. And, and as a consequence, those are the kind of things that I would be thinking about uh, if I were thinking, yeah, mm, 20 years out. I feel like we've gone from zero to Mad, Ma- Mad Max. Well, and that, but that's, yeah, that's actually what's happening. It's, yeah. It is actually, it's all, it's all real. It's just that's right. terrifying. But we avoided that conversation around corruption and affordability. Yeah. And as a consequence, we got that change. They're sitting over there at 12th and Canby now, passing motions that, as I say, even a few years ago, wouldn't have been on the, on the table. Right. And we're going to see more of that. You simply cannot deal out a whole generation, half of the city or more, and think there won't be some kind of response to that. 
John, John Flavel, uh, I say, I'm watching him on the Berkeley. Yeah. If, if John, as a leader of the UDI, as a major developer, doesn't come up with a strategy that provides security, reasonable security for middle and lower middle income renters and thinks that we are going to allow the conversion of that 1960s housing stock, whether it be high rise or low rise, John, I don't see any evidence of that. I was part of the council that stopped you from doing it when we saw it. And I got to go back on this one. So in about the late 80s. This just so just for every all of our listeners, this is the the yeah. Berkeley Tower on Denman uh Denman that, and Davey. Yeah, that is basically is old tower that is under the Reliance has bought it and is looking to renovate. He yeah. wants to renovate. Yeah. Yeah. Now he doesn't want to have to renovate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He he is actually offering a pretty decent package for people. Right. But regardless, if he sets a model that now is applied to the over 200 of those kind of buildings in the West End, that's a political crisis no council would sustain, and this one in particular isn't even going to allow it to get there. Mine wouldn't have, and we had exactly that condition. There was a three-story walk-up in Carisdale that was due to come down, uh, and here was what we saw. They were going to evict grandma, women who had been living there for decades, to replace it with a condo that would have less units and less population and would be higher, and block views. We would lose density, we would lose affordability, we would create political controversy. Every building that subsequently was targeted would be a source of controversy. We could see losing. We could lose our own constituency, our base on the west side, because the people in Caresdale didn't want grandma evicted. They didn't want more luxury high-rises and view-blocking towers. They didn't want a change in scale or character. So we stopped it. And we did the same in the West End and South Granville, and we just basically kept the status quo while at the same time proceeding with the mega projects. You see the balance there. So this is going to happen. It's not like this council or anyone is going to allow that kind of conversion to occur at a time of a perceived housing crisis. And basically say to most of the people of the city, you don't really belong here because you can't afford it. And we're going to do what we can to replace you. Political suicide. So it's really only a question of whether this partnership between this council, City Hall, and the community can be reestablished in such a way with the development community that it does offer. Define it as affordability if you wish. It's still going to be expensive. You will never get to a state where everyone is going to have housing cheaper than they, would, than they can pay now or would like to have. But you can at least return the promise of the city that there is a place for you or an opportunity of a place for you for the future. Maybe we should leave it there just because I, I, you know, I think we did say that uh, we were going to take about 30 minutes of your time and now we've taken over in an hour. So we appreciate that. We've just been enjoying the conversation so much. Um, but before we wrap, we've got, uh, we've got this segment called the five wire. Can you stick around for that? Absolutely. All right. So question number one is what is your favorite neighborhood in Vancouver. Oh, I think yeah. I know the answer. No, yeah, 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 yeah. West End, West End, West End. <laughs> I do not have to cross a bridge. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big factor. But I, I, I do consider it an urban miracle. It's still a lower middle income rental neighborhood performing the same function as a guy in his late 20s found himself in the city that welcomed him. D- does still your, doing that. Does your heart bleed for retail on Denman? Not a lot. <laughs> 
I, uh, I do think it's ready for, shall we say, refreshing. Sure. I'm pretty confident that's going to happen. But it, Denman in particular has this curious illusion that landlords and developers seem to fall in. They go down there in summer and they see the crowds and they somehow think that that should be the floor. It's not like that in November. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thinking of Denman, your favorite bar or restaurant? I don't have a favorite restaurant in the West End, partly because I don't go out to restaurants as much. But um, oh, okay, no, I do have one. It just opened. Doesn't have to be in. It doesn't have to be in the West End, though. Yeah, no, it is. It's just down the street. <laughs> Big fan of Breca. Breca. Oh, right, the cafe. It just opened in an old bank that was previously a Dairy Queen, which says something about the West End doesn't actually like chains that much. Right. Yeah. Right. Wait, is that the the Dairy Queen on Denman is now a Breca cafe? Yeah. They got great donuts. The El Scones. Oh. El Scones. <laughs> no more blizzards, Matt. Yeah, I know. It's actually a tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you bring someone from out of town, the first place you take them in Vancouver? To my front window. We overlook Lost Lagoon. Oh, okay. uh, That's why you don't want a detached house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, downtown penthouse or Westside Mansion? I think I know uh, the answer to this. Yeah. And I wouldn't go for the penthouse either. Yeah. Uh, I do like the second and third floors, and I'll tell you why. I'm no dependent on elevators. We're on the second floor of our building, so, you know. Very nice. It's the slowest elevator in the West End. I don't have the patience. And I get a little exercise, so hey, what's not to like? Yeah. And, and here's the other thing. I can see people on the street. Uh, I, I think there's a place for high-rises, and hey, I'm in one, but I'm on the, the lower floors. And when they talk about human scale, what, really what that means is I can look in your eyes and see whether you're a friend or foe. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I just love watching people go by. And I, I at a corner where, oh, I got to tell you this, history time. Uh, you know what traffic calming is? You know the mini parks and diverters in the West End. Right. I think we were the first in North America to do that. I think you can historically say that this was a change in how cities approached uh, the idea of traffic management. Wow. Yeah, wow. Uh, so you couldn't cut through from the causeway to beach, yeah, as sure. people were. Yeah, yeah. The story goes that Art Phillips' mother lived in my building and called up Art and said, hey, that traffic by here is just awful. As it turns out, the NPA council had already started the planning process for I always for heard that. that there was, it was had to do with... Uh, uh, hookers and the West. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, myth. Really? Yep. Crazy. Now, the I West of Denman too. one was the first. This was the early 70s. By the time... East of Denman went in, that was the early 80s. And, and the council did bring it forward to see if it would have some impact on the right. prostitution problem. But I lived in the West End for years. I still can't drive the West End, partly because of the traffic. Well, no, the idea. No, <laughs> no Grandview too. I, often it takes me 45 minutes to get to my own place. Yeah, yeah. The, the most significant <laughs> turning point in the city, I generally acknowledged, was not building the freeway. Yeah, uh, But what it really meant was that we had to take the alternative seriously. And we have an incredibly creative engineering department. I have a lot of respect for those guys. A new generation, younger, more women. Uh, but they really took on the challenge of how do you accommodate a city that wasn't going to be as dependent on the car. Still mm -hmm. a place for it. Trucks, buses. And Burrard Bridge, to me, is a masterpiece of uh, traffic engineering. One thing that, and it's, I think it's kind of a cycle that uh, talent begets talent, but one thing in my mind about the city of Vancouver, when you look at at least other Canadian cities, is it the, the level of talent uh, and how it attracts talent is really kind of exceptional. But is that... And, and that's not only because is, your wife works there. No, I know, but, I, but also, and she's a big fan of yours, but I, at, at the end of the day, 
is it kind of that NHL kind of model that like, cause we had Larry Beasley on the program, Vancouverism just as like a model. Do you, do you learn about that in grad studies and say, I want to work in Vancouver? Like, do we, do we, are we a magnet for talent? Uh, yeah, somewhat. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It? Part of it? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Cause, uh, you have a council that uh, at least has historically been willing to support pay and support. Yeah. Our bureaucrats are expensive. They should be, you want yeah. the best. Uh, but we do allow th- those uh, within the bureaucracy, the structures, the policies, all of that stuff that constrains you to really do stuff that you can, you can reasonably bet it's going to be career making. Right. And I, I just think about uh, some of the planners that we've had on the program and ideas like Northeast Falls Creek and stuff. I mean, it, it, it's the biggest mistake that uh, Vision Council made was uh, trying to purge some of the senior staff uh, by bringing in, I'll say, Penny Bellum. Uh, that was a mistake. You want continuity, you recognize they are public service in the British sense that they're not partisan. They will serve their political masters. Give them your back. It's the other way around. Uh, support them, provide continuity in the resources. But be clear on what you want. When council said in the 94 transportation plan that we would not provide any more resources to expand capacity for the single occupancy vehicle, and they believed us, then you begin to get the creative responses that I think typify the city now. So that, in fact, in downtown Peninsula, there's less traffic. I know people can't believe this. I can't believe it. But it's true because it is so reasonable to walk and to cycle now with car share. By the way, you were asking me where I would go if I wasn't going apocalyptic on you. I think we're into a profound change in transportation. I'm willing to bet, you heard it here, play it back, that within 10 years, the idea of you owning your own car will seem like a very strange idea. Mm -hmm. You will buy a service plan, and it will give you a range of transportation choices. And and, uh, the new technologies and the new ways we can... Access information. It's happening a lot it's quicker happening. than people also, thought as well. It's happening. That's yeah. right. Everything's happening so quick. Well, anyway, uh, five, five. Uh, we only got two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we did. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, yeah, we, we are. It's the last question. Place. And I'm. Uh, oh, yeah. Here yeah. it is. This is your question. You're, you're good at framing it. Um, what is something you have purchased in the last year under $500? It could be a gadget or a record, an app that has really had a, a positive influence on your life. Or a something. service. Oh, well, it cost me nothing. Uh, and it fits in exactly what I was just saying. It's called Transit App. Plug, guys, three guys in the plateau in Montreal came up with this. It's an integrator of, of uh, <laughs> data streams. So essentially, where's my phone? I can go right now, as I will, and find out when the next closest bus is coming. I can find out where the nearest car to go is. I can find out what the closest docking station is. I can it brings all them together. All into one. And, uh, that's, uh, that's amazing, actually. Well, I, I can, seems it's the app I use most often yeah. next to some of the... And it's called Transit App? Transit App. Transit now. And it works in about 200 cities. There's also City Mapper. There's other ones that are coming into it. Uh, yeah, and they're just indispensable because they do that key thing. They provide you the information you need when you need it and gives you a range of choices. You know, there was an app that just, and I, and I'm just made me think of it, but there was an app about, um, I think it had to do with the bike share program where you could actually earn points yeah. and then local businesses would take that as a credit for 10% off or something like that. So you're actually, 
it rewarded was, it for biking. Rewarded for for using public transport. Yes. Well, I'm also warning idea, uh, in, in the price tags blog. You'll occasionally see a post that starts with the rise of the TSP, the transit service provider. I do think there's a real danger here. I I do believe that uh, the real power will come with either oligopoly or even in some cases monopoly. That there will be one service provider that you give your money to once a month that then provides you with the information on the range of choices. That's why Daimler is into car to go. Uh, that's why Uber is buying up bike share. That's probably why Amazon, as we speak, is thinking about how they get control of the trucking industry. Uh, that's why transit is going to be very much subject to either being uh, skimmed off or integrated into this. And the public role in, in transportation is going to be increasingly ambiguous. But here's the reason why. Oh, let me ask, how much do you spend on telecommunications every month? Telecommunications? Uh, I have a... Internet, phone, yeah, cable. Yeah, I, I would say, what, three or four hundred bucks? Yeah. yeah. They're high. Most people are around two hundred. Yeah, I would... Uh, well, yeah, we're, I'm, I'm yeah. two fifty, I'd say. Part of your job. Yeah. It's uh, a write-off. Okay, so two hundred a month. And let's say practically, could you live without your phone? Absolutely. Maybe, Absolutely. maybe we just got not that yeah. plan. I feel sick that it's been an hour. I haven't looked at it. Yeah, twitch. I've twitch. had a computer screen in front of me. <laughs> All right. I'm going to offer you a range of transportation choices such that you will not need to own your own car. And indeed, because insurance is going to be increasingly expensive if you don't have the latest technology, I'll take your liability too. How much? 500 a month? I'd give you 500 a month. Yeah, I think you would. Because if you have your own car, that's about 10,000 a year. Do the numbers plus transit. Bike share, car share, you name it. Parking is insane. I'll give you these incentives, all of these arrangements. It's going to be a very attractive deal. I can get 500 a month. I'll put you on the platinum package, 1000 Tell me what kind of car you want. Service delivery. All, all kinds of stuff. Imagine the cash flow. Almost immediately, I become the most powerful financial corporation. Next, possibly, to banks and maybe bigger. Imagine the infrastructure, because I'll be able to issue debt on that cash flow, I'll be able to build. I'll be more powerful than government. I'll be shaping cities. I'm Robert Moses multiplied. Robert Moses, construction coordinator in New York City in the 20th sure, century. Sure, sure. The Bronx. <laughs> yeah, never forget. All that stuff. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is power and money and city building. Uh, this is existential. Yeah. So we got to watch out for that. Because what is the public role? If you can't afford it, it's you wouldn't have transportation? Not a chance. So how are we going to provide equity? How are we going to deal with that? And I think these questions need to be discussed now. This is not about how we pay for it. This is not about mobility pricing. That's just a tangent. How do you pay now the taxes on telecommunications? What's the tax on a cell phone call? No idea. Don't know, don't care. What's the tax on your overall plan? You could probably find out, but you don't, right? You want the service. And once you've got it, it's not a question of how much the tax is. It's like flying. Well, that, as I say, comes after we've determined who's going to be providing these services, how they'll be integrated. Yes, how they'll be paid for. There's going to be so much wealth flowing through the system that we need to be determining now. I applaud the provincial government for at least sending the message to Uber that you play by our rules not the other way around. There's going to be very powerful entities that will want us to play by their rules. But is it a question? I, I just think about real estate. Uh, 
I just read an article the other day that the the companies that are trying to disrupt the real estate industry spend what the real estate board and council on technology spend in a year in like two weeks. Yeah. So I mean, this is what we're up against, right? I mean, when at what point can Amazon just decide? I I do this now, you know, and I and we'll outspend you on every every corner. Well, they right? can already. Yeah, and I sure. think that's where we're moving in transportation. So all the more reason why we uh, citizens have to be aware that what now, has, we have one huge uh, ability to yeah. control this, and that's called roads. We own the real yeah. estate. It's real estate, guys. Right. It always comes back to always real estate. Said, everything goes back to real estate. Yeah, yeah it, but the independent governments as well is is obviously crucial. And how we respond to all of these amazing forces that are going to shape your lives. So as a, as a final, uh, yes or no here, are you, it's hard to get a read. Are you, uh, uh, optimistic about the future of Vancouver? Which day, which moment, which subject? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, no. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe we'll leave it there. (laughs) I'd say this. I, I don't think in terms of optimism, I think in terms of possibility, I just, in the end, feel blessed. I'm a Canadian on the West Coast, living in the West End, if I can't feel at least content or happy or optimistic, who can? I I don't deserve to live here. Right. Make room for somebody who would. Very well so, said. Yeah. Good good line to go out on there. Well thanks so much for your time, Gordon. Yeah. That was uh last, last but not least, can you can you oh, yeah, how can people right, find out right. more about you and what you're doing and uh we already talked about price tags a bit. But. Pricetags.ca. Uh, starting podcasting. Great. It's not competition. We're built on the market. In <laughs> yeah, fact, yeah. we'll have you guys on. Uh, so, yeah, uh, you can go there for price talks. We're just growing that. Uh, and wave to me when I'm on my bike. Yeah, check. You're, you're on the Arbutus Greenway or, or the bike tr- bike road or, or one of the bike lanes. Well, remember, I'm a West End boy. So, yeah. uh, you know, I don't have to go off the peninsula yeah. to get my full hit. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time. That was uh, one of the more wide-ranging discussions we've had. But, Fascinating. Uh, very fa- we'll have to have you back. Oh, please. Okay. Enjoyed it immensely, guys. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Gordon Price. Matt, if that didn't get the hamster wheel turning, I don't know what will. You know what? That was a fantastic conversation. What struck me about it is we talked about, you know, anything from the history of Vancouver to the coming apocalypse. And Gordon had uh, uh, an interesting take on every single thing we mentioned. It's kind of incredible to, yeah, uh, I'm, to I'm, talk I'm, with guys like him. I know. And I'm on my way to buy property in East Va- Southeast Vancouver. Southeast but Vancouver. first, I got to take care of this bunker in my backyard. <laughs> I know. I, the, the conversation, there was kind of the different uh, peaks and valleys there where I was either laughing, crying, optimistic. I don't yeah. know. But yeah, <laughs> great conversation. So glad Gordon uh, took the time to come down to the studio. But what else do we got before we cut for the day? We got VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Head over to our site where you're going to get the latest news on Vancouver real estate. We also have those research tools such as private client services. Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. It's basically realtor level information at your fingertips and it's free. Sign up. It's the best thing out there. We've tried them all. If you're not using private client services to search Vancouver real estate, you're doing it wrong. We also have that mobile app. Yeah, Matt, picture this. You are 
using Gordon's public transportation app. Wow. And, uh, you I are, didn't know about that app. That maybe suggests I should take more public transportation. Yeah, you're west of Denman. You're by the lagoon. You're walking around. Second, you're looking for some lower floor. Lower floor actually unit. an interesting thing he said as well. He's got a view from a lower floor. That means that must be the most serene environment ever, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it sounds like a great spot. It does. It does. Anyways, you can check if he's on the market. I don't think he is. But uh, point you get the third floor. Point the mobile app at the building, and it will show you what's listed in real time. This is augmented reality, folks. It's the future. That's right. What else do we got? We've got our reviews. We're currently at 192 on yeah, Apple for uh, five-star reviews. We really appreciate everybody listening. If you want to help us grow this podcast, please share it with uh, family or friends, or also head over to iTunes, leave us a review, um, and... Uh, yeah, yeah, we really appreciate we it. We definitely appreciate it. If you want to chat real estate or anything else, give me a call at any time, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also have that secret Scalina line. Info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Man, those voice lessons are really paying off. Money well spent. He's really coming around here. Yeah. See you next week, guys. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join. 
type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join typing in VRP 2020. <laughs>